Runners Radio is brought to you by Runners.com and the Runners Red Zone. It's the only running coaching platform you will ever need. There's no thinking, no planning. We do all of that. Just put us in your ears and away you go. 45-minute quality running sessions, strength and conditioning for anyone, yoga, and much, much more. If you're wanting to take minutes off your PB, run a marathon, or just beginning your running journey, then head on over to runners.com. That's R-U-N-N-E-Z.com, and get started. Rightio, let's get on to the show. Previously on Runners Radio. His training philosophy can be explained in one phrase, keep the ball rolling. A true student of the sport, I welcome Tom, the Tin Man Swartz. Welcome, Coach. It was the perfect stimulus for activating those type 2A fast intermediate muscle fibers and developing the machinery to make them aerobic monsters. Um, you spoke about Jim Ryan, who, for the listeners who don't know, is a, is a very good miler and uh, the the high school uh, mile world record. So just just um, fill the listeners in on Jim Ryan, and that's a miler we're talking about for CV, and then take us through that that era of distance running. And and then where where did you think it started to change um, from the American top of view? Because I'm intrigued here as well. And where did they go just to hard intervals all the time? What era was that, and where was that changeover? Well, I think, uh, I mean, it's been kind of like a roller coaster, like a sine wave. So the United States really started getting into very, very fast interval training um, post-World War II. Part of it might have been because, you know, you had, uh, you had uh, Franz Stoffel, who was coaching people like Roger Bannister and a couple others that broke world records over there in England and Stoffel was a Hungarian guy and he was a, he was into interval training and uh, you know, you got to remember he came from a, he came from a communist country where basically everything, the only, the only formal running you had was on the track. Mm. So if you're going to be on the track, much like Zadopec, you better figure out some methods that are um, going to keep the athletes improving, keep them mentally engaged and so on. And I think Stomfel was brilliant at it. He, he's the one that came up with, the, you know, an advanced system of progression from October all the way until the following summer. And you, you start with a certain number of intervals at a slower pace, like somebody, um, somebody like Roger Bannister would do 10 times 470 seconds or 68 seconds in October mm. with a certain recovery. And the recovery was always a lap jog in two and a half minutes, by the way. Everybody thinks Roger Bannister was doing 10 times a quarter mile with a minute recovery. He was not. Franz Stomfel did not prescribe minute recoveries. He, in fact, prescribed equal distance recoveries for short intervals. That's where Lydiard borrowed the concept. Mm -hmm. Because Lydiard had people like Peter Snell and, and, and John Davies and Bill Bailey and all those guys doing fast a fast 400 but they jogged to 400. So Snell would do 20 of them and he'd start out at say 65 on the very first time he would do them, right? After having run 10 weeks of marathon conditioning, they, he didn't, Lydia didn't call it a base. He called it marathon conditioning for 10 weeks. And then uh, a month of hill work, you know, up to six weeks. He started with six weeks and over time, Lydia dialed it back and said, everything you can get from hill training is developed in four weeks. You don't need six, right? And then uh, somebody like Snell would do 20 times 400, but he'd run him in like 65 or 66 seconds on his first session and he'd have a full jog lap, uh, full jog recovery. So a full lap recovery. And then as the weeks went by, six weeks later, he was down to, roughly 60 seconds, but he wasn't doing it with a minute recovery. Mm. He was doing it with a two plus minutes recovery. Okay. So really he, he was continuing to do what Arthur Liddy was saying, which was gradually make progressions and don't go to anaerobic. If, if he could sum up Lydiard's concepts, it were a develop a huge aerobic 
base or conditioning background so that you can handle a lot of high quality without getting tired. And when you do the high quality, do a sufficient amount of it to get the benefits. But in order to do a sufficient amount of it and not peak too early, you can't have short recoveries. But everybody in America who influenced everybody else in the world want to do, see if we can, oh, well, if two and a half minutes recovery is good, let's try two. Well, let's try a minute and a half. Let's try a minute. So next thing you know, in America in the 1950s and into the 60s, people were doing as 400s as fast as they could with as short a recovery as possible. Mm. And what were they doing? They were stalling out after six weeks. They couldn't get any better, and then we get worse. Only a small number of individuals who figured out that you need to continue to do endurance training while you're doing all these fast 400s. You know, they figured it out. The Bob Timmons of the world figured it out. Okay? But they borrowed from the swimming world, which had already figured it out. Mm. Somebody from your own country had figured out. Forbes Carlisle. Yes, Right. Brilliant swim, swim, uh, uh, swimming coach, you know, and he often talked about the fact, you know, use the general adaptation syndrome on Celia's general adaptation syndrome. You must not have failing adaptation. You're better off resting and easing back and doing less than doing more and failing. And then your body gets sick. What good does it, you know, in the, in to paraphrase Carlisle, what good does it do, you know, to get to a high level of fitness and then become sick and you can't do anything in the championships because you're sick or you're injured? What good does it do you? That's brilliant. And too often we hit the point of diminishing returns or, uh, often and wonder why athletes are, are banged up, are psychologically unmotivated, uh, plateauing in performance. And, and it can all be avoided by just listening to some of this methodology from uh from coach Swartz. and i guess you're talking on on the lydiard model um i know you take some from him but i i love the fact that you are multi-faceted all year round which i i really love and i really um, adhere to that as well so i guess take the listeners through so age groupers someone like drew hunter anyone really your your basic annual year is touching on all systems all year round and in sessions i know you touched on the the end of the cv workout earlier the neuromuscular development and that as well so i guess um your, your big annual year and and the reason why you like to touch on all systems all year round i love it and i think people need to hear it number one is running as a skill and the vast majority of distance coaches you know in the past uh, did not understand it. The, the, the Jack Daniels, the Bob Timmons, the Joe V Hills, you know, um, you know, a handful of other really, really good coaches around the world. You know, Pat Cloacy, Clo in your country is, a, in my view, you know, one of the all-time legends and greats. He's a brilliant you know, man. The, the, the Harry Wilsons, uh, you know, in, in England, people like that. They all knew that running is a skill. The problem is if you're doing weeks on end of, just distance running, you're completely ignoring skill, right? Skill is not developing when you're just running distance work, right? Um, and as a physiologist, I look at the, you know, running economy as a big deal. Running economy is huge. Economy is the measurement of how much oxygen it is required to run either a given distance or at a given speed. And as skill develops, the amount of oxygen required to run at a given distance or speed decreases. Therefore, the demand is less for a given speed and therefore you can hold your speed longer. Okay, so think of it as efficiency. Um, enhancing, enhancing your skill improves your efficiency, lowers energy cost, and therefore allows you to run farther at a given speed. Okay, so if you're ignoring skill by just doing distance work, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're ignoring a huge component. I, in my mind, skill is about 30% of performance. Okay, and if you're going 10 weeks or 12 weeks and doing a so-called base and you're not running fast and you're ignoring that 30% component. And we know this, economy changes gradually over time. 
physiologists know that it's not an overnight fix. You can't reduce energy costs at a given speed or for a given distance in just a, a month even typically. It takes many, many weeks. What we see in people who've been in the sport for 10 years people versus people in five years is not a change in their VO2 max. What we see is a change in their economy. It costs them less energy to run at a given speed in ten, at 10 years into the sport than it does at five. Okay. I say, keep working on your skill and you have to have uh, exposure to a wide array of speeds and the amount of power that you need to generate and the terrain over which you're running. If you're going to be a great cross-country runner and you're going to be running on hills in your championship race, why do you wait until for a four-week period, you know, wait for weeks to finally get on the hills? Why don't you run hills for many, 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 many weeks? You know, why don't you do in strider for many, many, many weeks? Why don't you do a little bit of race pace work for many, many weeks? Most of your training should be focused on that endurance and stamina and strength development, but you should always touch on those skills, always touch on anything that makes you push from your hips more, right? Watch anybody. I was just at the track earlier today, and I was testing some people for my doctoral dissertation. And while my, my, uh, the subjects in my study were warming up, I was watching uh, – an avid older runner, he was 70 years old. I talked to him afterwards. And he happens to be pretty good for his age. But the one thing I noticed about him and many others that I've watched around the greater Boulder area who are older, serious runners still, is they can't push off from the hips. They had the, they consequently learned to run with a very, very quick stride. They can't push off from the hips. They got no power in their hips. Okay. I'm telling you, you got to be able to extend from the hips. And if you're running just distance work with a shorter stride, you're never pushing off sufficiently from the hips. So that's the reason, one of the reasons why I really believe that multiple paces, multiple intensities, exposure, everything all year round is important. Enhance your skill, lower your energy cost. And then from a, from a psychological point of view, if you have been exposed to all these different paces, you're gonna be able to apply them at will, almost at automatic. And I will say another thing, I noticed a long time ago, fewer injuries occur when you run multiple paces. So, when I was running, when I was playing basketball or other sports way back when I was young and we transitioned into track, I never got injured. It wasn't until I got to college and I was only a runner that I started getting injured. That's brilliant, Coach. And the, the last five minutes just on that all-year uh, multifaceted and not one phasic model, uh, it just makes so much sense. And you wonder why um, people don't do it more. Um, but it's brilliant. And you, you're not a lot. You've got a couple of other coaches I know over over there that do similar stuff, but not not as – spot on as you and it's brilliant the way you do it and we'll talk about your elite guys in a minute but i i love it and you've been awesome for me that, that's that makes so much sense so if, if you're a listener out there and you you are struggling or you, you're always breaking or you're plateauing which is common um just take a look back at your last six months and just look at what you've actually done and then uh, you might want to start to input some of coach uh, Swartz's stuff in here which is brilliant tell us about the um i guess the early 2000 coach and and how you i guess developed into what you're doing now um and then i'll touch on some of your major influences as well but early 2000s the turn of the millennium what were you doing and and how did you start to i guess or you formed the proteins and all that but take us through that period of your life well um i was starting to go from just coaching a small number of people and wherever i happened to live you know um to the idea of helping the broader running community. That was when the running forum started uh, on the internet and I started sharing my ideas with the idea that I wanna help athletes out there and coaches um, develop to a higher level. 
I don't know, there's this, there's this teacher in me. Uh, I can't really explain it. It's just, I just love the idea of helping people learn and grow. And so that's what I started getting into. And I started realizing that uh, once I started posting on the internet, you know, on the, on the running forums about training physiology and methodology and stuff like that, that I could reach out to the running world rather than just coach a few local runners. And that's what occurred to me that, you know, maybe, maybe I need to be involved in a bigger sense than I was. Um, and then uh, basic opportunities, some doors opened and uh, good examples. I was coaching Drew Hunter's mom. She had saw, read a lot of my work on uh, letsrun.com and she was wanting to grow and learn herself. And she was fascinated with some of the ideas I was sharing because it, it, it seemed to um, go against the norm. Um, I was saying, look, you don't need a ton of high intensity training to be quick. Um, you need just enough. You need to do this critical velocity type stuff. Um, so she hired me to coach her in the 800. And she was a master's runner and she'd been competitive in college and stuff like that and trained throughout her um, 20s and into her 30s and into her early 40s. And she was coaching and doing lots of assigning lots of interval work. Um, and she had, she, in her own words, she had some really good 800 meter runners, but she was not quite having what she had hoped for, for anybody in a mile and longer. And so I guess she was just, she was ready to open up and learn to new ideas. And that's why she hired me. Well, it was, it turned out to be um, something good for both, both of us. I started helping Joan for two years and, and I coached her for two years and she improved a lot. And she was constantly saying, are you sure running this slow, doing repeat thousand that slow is going to make me faster for the 800? I'm like, yep. She's like, okay, I'll do it. You know, she's really good at discipline, but she needs to know why, right? She's a thing. She needs to know why. And she, she improved. She was like 242 um, when I started coaching her. And two years later at 240, she was 222 at age 48. So she improved a lot. And she got second on her master's indoor nationals. And I think the only beat person that beat her was Meredith Rainey, who was like a 157, 800 meter runner back in the day and ran in the Olympics. Joan was like right on her tail, like really close, much to her credit. And uh, so why do I mention this? Because this opened the door to where the Tin Man Elite and, and that sort of thing, um, you know, is now. I, I helped Joan. Uh, Joan said, hey, you know, my, my son's 14 years old. He's getting into running. Um, let's use some of the ideas that we have used the last two years on my own training to help the high school team. I said, great. And I, at the very same time that that was occurring, I probably had seven or eight other coaches from around the United States and a couple from foreign countries. I had one from Ireland. I had one from Scotland. I had one from New Zealand. I had one from South Africa. Uh, they were all asking me to help them with their programs. And so I was writing training schedules, looking at their schedules and say, you need to throw at this and add this, or you need to modify this. Um, because it's going to be a limiter. Um, so I was mentoring a lot. Um, and the long story short is it continued to make me think that maybe I should be involved in coaching more runners and some runners at a higher level, not just the master's runners that I was coaching. I was coaching guys that were some of the best in the world, master's runners, and some average every day in Jane and Joe's. But the opportunity came along to coach Drew Hunter in high school and probably eh, four to six others at the time that were good in other countries. In fact, Nick Bitto in your country was asking me to coach Sonia Sullivan. So I did. Um, and he also was asking me to, uh, for a guy named Simon, I can't remember his last time. He was six at your nationals and a 10,000. I don't remember his last name. It's been a long time. But anyway, um, so like a lot of little things happened, you know, and next thing you know, we're at about 2016 and I was coaching quite a few guys that were really 
pretty decent runners. I was coaching some 342, 1500 meter guys and a few guys that were 1345 to 1410, 5K runners. And they have me coach them for three or six months and they get to a high level and then they say, I got it. And they go off on their own. And what would happen is two years later, I get an email saying, you were right. I should have stuck with you, blah, blah, blah. Your method was right. I kind of went back to the old stuff and running gold base and it kind of blew up in my face. Um, I don't know if I kind of got all over the place, but I was trying to give it a foundation of where we are. That's a brilliant foundation because this is where it all began. So um, I guess the, the pro team as well. And then like, you do coach many age groupers and masters runners all over the world. But um, I guess, yeah, the Drew Hunter, for the listeners that don't know your methodology uh, with Drew and then I guess what happened in 2016 is breakout performances. So you can take us through that, mate, because I think there's a lot of people that still don't know, quite know who Drew is. Yeah, Drew's, Drew's an extraordinary human being. The, he fits the mold of, of what I think is the most important for a world-class runner, and that's mental. Um, there, Drew, like all top runners, has an insatiable appetite to be better than he was before. And he also um, has extraordinarily high standards, just like every top athlete I've ever met. To the outsider, um, when you see an athlete like a Drew or a Matt Centrowitz or any of those top individuals not perform up to their standard, it's not pretty sometimes for one to three hours afterwards. They're not happy. They're not nice people to be around. You got to give them space. They have such extraordinary high standards that the average person would never dream of. And they take it personal. It's one of the reasons why they push themselves to their to a high level. Everybody thinks it's all ta- physical talent. I can't stand the word talent. Mm. It drives me crazy. I hate when commentators, some of them on NBC Sports, say, "Oh, they're such a great talent." You're ignoring all that's. You're ignoring all the training they did, all the coaching instruction, all the support from their family members or or whomever's in their community. You're ignoring all of that. And you're ignoring the mental part too. They develop toughness, the ability to handle adversity over time, to not back down from it, to learn from their mistakes, to reframe situations in ways that are helping them get better. See, the average person, when they have defeat, that lingers in their mind and it changes their self Self-image. They say, well, I guess I, I just don't have the ability. Yeah, it, it's a, a fixed mindset, right? That's the, the Carol Dweck, Dr. Carol Dweck from Stanford talks about. Fixed, fixed mindset versus growth mindset. What we're talking about is the way to become an extraordinary performer in whatever you do, sport or otherwise, is to set standards that are high enough that you got to really work to get them, get there. Don't, don't uh, back down from adversity and continue to get to uh, refine what you're doing. Very often it requires objectivity that you cannot yourself, you know, come, come to grips with. You can't, you're so clouded in your emotional drive to succeed that you can't see the objective way of getting there. That's why you need a coach. That's why you need a mentor. That's why you need people to give you feedback, to offer suggestions. And often uh, it can make the difference, the difference that opens the door. That's brilliant. Drew Drew's a, a spectacular example of that. But most mm-hmm. top-end performers are, as you've mentioned there, the growth mm-hmm. mindset. Growth mindset is key and the ability to adapt and I guess listen, take on your guidance and their family's support. That's great. Yeah. And yeah the talent, the talent word gets thrown around a lot and it does, it, it does disrespect everything else that's gone into it. Um, which yeah. is re- really, it's very easy to say they're talented or they're naturally gifted. And, um, but it, what about the last decade of work? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Take a look at some of the individuals in your own country. Take a look at somebody like Stuart McSwain right now. 
I don't don't tell me Stewie is just all talent to run what he's mm. do to do what he's doing. That guy has been working at his craft for a very long time with guidance, right? There's no, there's no such thing as an Right. Look at Machum. Yes, those guys have some physical talent. But you know, Claude Bouchard, the famous researcher from University de Mont Montreal de Quebec, said, you know, 51% of athletic performance is genetics. 49% of all those other factors. He looked at twin twins that were separated at birth and grew up in different households. That's how I he identified whether, how much was attributed to natural ability and how much developed. And he concluded after decades of doing it that it's about half. That's that means there's a lot to work on in this other sector. And if you don't have the right methods, I don't care how hard you work, you're going to run up against a wall. Brilliantly put. That's a that's a fair chunk, and that's why we love this game so much because that forty nine percent, apart from the other byproducts of the uh, mental and emotional well being, the productivity throughout the day, um, obviously serotonin, dopamine, endorphins released, all that stuff. The forty nine percent that is what that's what we love as coaches as as leaders, as mentors, as athletes, that's what we love, that 49%, because we know how malleable it is. And we know that if we do it the right way, intelligently, um, with continuity, and of course, play the long game with patience and, and love the process, of course, that the rest will really follow. And and I think you've, you've just given many great examples. Uh, you've got a lot of elite guys on your books that um, are very much buying into that. Obviously, uh, Drew Drew Hunt is that one of the big ones, but Reed Fisher, Parsons, Jordy Gusman, Brogan Austin, I think, is still there. There's many others, but those guys, but all the age groupers around the world that you coach, uh, Tommy, and and obviously the Masters athletes as well. So there's many that have bought in and and are yielding massive, massive benefit. I, I love when you you get stuck into this, and I reckon another one of your big tips, which I love, and I know many elites do, but unfortunately many age groupers don't, especially in the age of Strava, is just to go bloody easy on your easy days, Tin Man. Can you tell the listeners why? And then tell, go into some of these stories of the, the Moorcrofts of the England and and the Kenyans and and these kind of guys and tell them why and rerunning economy as well. Well, you know, you have, you have individuals um, from certain cultures that – simply run slowly when they don't, when they're not required to run fast. And because of social reasons, if you go over to Kenya, I've had friends that go over to go over to Kenya and they come back and they tell me, you know what? It's amazing. Those guys talk and talk and talk and talk. And I go, why is it? Well, that's part of their culture. This, they're really friendly people. And it may be that maybe they didn't have a lot of money to be able to buy some of the fancy you know, uh, TVs and all that sort of thing from a long time ago, like other people did. And so they continue to uh, talk, uh, talk and run at the same time, you know, catch up. And then when they're required to do their track workout or their hard fart like workout or their hill workout, they got serious about it. Um, now, from a, from a physiology point of view, I say, well, it's really simple. You have an autonomic nervous system that has sympathetic and parasympathetic components. Think of it this way. When you're, uh, when you're excited, one gets amped up, one, one is, gets uh, overrun, the sympathetic and over, uh, parasympathetic. So what you have is uh, a body that's a nervous system that's responding to stress in your life. You respond to whether there's a, lion in your midst or hyenas in your midst, okay, or everything is fine. Now, when you're running at a high level every day, instead of having easy day, hard day, easy day, hard day, if you're pushing every day, that's to your body as if the hyena or the lions or cheetahs are going to get you. They're always in your midst. Always be on alert. Always have your adrenaline ready. Always have something in your system to, because you have to fear for your life. The problem with being amped up every single day is that eventually your health deteriorates. And at some point, you don't get benefits from your training anymore. So you're just putting in the bloody work and it doesn't do you a darn bit of good. 
And that is not a good situation because it starts playing on your psychology. Okay. So my point is run slow enough that you're not overloading your sympathetic nervous system on your easy days. You're still having sufficient, sufficient stimulus on your heart. If you're running for an hour, hour and a half or something like that at a slow pace, you're putting lots of pressure on your heart over a long period of time and you're improving its ejection fraction. It can go up from 50 to almost 70% just from distance running. I'm sorry, 60 to 70%. 59.4% is the normal ejection fraction of your heart. With easy distance running and high volume and no high quality work, you can make, make it 67% in about eight to 10 weeks. Right, that's that's a ten percent gain, roughly, in ejection fraction. I mean, that's why your heart rate slows down. That's one of the reasons at resting. Okay, um, and then if you're going slow enough on your easy days, you can you can really push your key workout days because you got energy in the tank, so to speak. You and you're a lot more precise. If you're using crappy mechanics because you're so fatigued from running too fast on your easy days, you're just basically teaching your body to run with bad mechanics on your fast day. And you're not helping your economy. You're, you're basically making that 30% sector worse. You're landing on your heels. You're not lifting your knees high enough. You're swinging your arms across your body. You're rotating your torso. You don't have your head in the right position. Your hips are sagging backward because you're so bloody tired from running too fast on your easy day. Slow down on your easy day. Run with really outstanding form and mechanics and precision and a really good sense of pace on your key workout days. Brilliant. Absorb the work. Absorb the work. Yes, keep jogging, but slow the hell down. Um, it's not a race on your easy days, and and don't worry about what I've just with athletes around the world. Don't worry about what Strava says or anything, because anyone that knows their stuff will know that easy jogging is easy jogging. If you've got to take your watch off, take your watch off. Um, I love yeah, this. Exactly. I love the story I've heard of you. You've told many times a story about about the English five thousand man, the thirteen flat man Moorcroft, and that's that's a great. Uh, tell a listener yeah. that. that that's a great story. Tell a listener that. Well, David Moorcroft, you know, uh, trained as a miler and starting in the 60s and into the 70s. And and he did a lot of the traditional work. And he was fortunate to be hooked up with um, a, phys- a middle elementary or primary school physical education teacher named David Anderson, who, who was an outside-of-the-box thinker, very much outside-of-the-box thinker, and said, okay, well, some of the ideas that everybody's uh, that everybody's using is fi- are fine, but I think we need to do something differently. For example, he thought stretching was bogus. Like, okay, just because you're more flexible doesn't mean you're going to be faster and injury-free because he wasn't seeing any changes. And he was saying things like, I don't see any improvement in the, in the research that shows that greater flexibility reduces running injuries. That was an example. Um, long story short is, David Moorcroft was in Coventry running uh, athletic club. Good little, good little club. They were pretty competitive in there in England. But the truth is, when he wanted to get to a higher level in the late 70s and transition up to the 5,000, he's like, I can't run these really hard workouts, repeat thousands, repeat 600s, repeat 300s or 150s, which are the main workouts that he did, and go fast. My club mates are going too fast. They want to run like 5.30 pace per mile. He jogged along at 6.30 per mile, which was incredibly easy for him so that he had the energy in the tank so he could hammer his fast workouts that Coach Anderson prescribed for him. So he refused to run with others. I can think of lots of other examples. One here in Boulder for a long time, we ended up becoming a world record holder, just like David. David was a 5,000-meter record holder in 1982, ran uh, in Oslo by himself out in front, nobody there, in light rain, 13 flat point four two. I suggest with a pacer nowadays that's down close to 12.50, getting the air drag, right, reduced, running behind somebody where you gain half a second a lap, Okay. 
Another person that ran by himself completely is Arturo Barrios. He broke the 10,000 meter record, lived right here in Boulder. He's originally from Mexico City, came to the United States and eventually moved to, um, moved to Boulder and trained all by himself. Why? Because he didn't want to get into traps of trying to do other people's paces. He wanted, he always thought that all the college kids at University of Colorado were running way too fast. So did Rob D. Costello, by the way, who lived and trained here during his best years. You know, Arturo Barrios used to have a rule. Your current 10K pace plus 90 seconds a mile. That's the fastest you need to run on your easy pace. And you know what? That's darn a good, a really good principle. Darn good. Because in Boulder, Colorado, where you're an elite runner, you're running 10 or 12 seconds a mile slower. Somebody like him who can run low 27s is low 28s, maybe mid 28s, equivalent here in, at, the, at the elevation, right? You add it on, he's running 630 a mile. What did Frank Shorter run in his easy days around here when he was training for the Olympics? Got the gold medal in 1972, the silver medal in 76 behind a drug cheater. So he really had two goals in my opinion. What did he run for a pace on easy days? 6.30 a mile for as an elite runner. Mm. Okay. What did Bill Rogers run? A 2.09 marathon or 2.09.26 marathon, 6.30 a mile. What did Rob D. Costello, after he got two or three miles of easy jogging in, because he had run nine minutes on his first mile. Yep. Okay. What did he run? About 6.30 per mile. And here's the crazy part. And even though I have met, um, Alberto Salazar, and he's, he was really friendly to me, and I really um, had a good conversation with him. Setting any allegations aside, he was really nice to me, and we had a nice conversation. But I, will, I would love to meet him again and ask him a question. Do you remember what you ran for in college when you were running really, really well? Because I, I used to have the log, mm. his exact log, and he ran, guess what? 6.30 a mile as an elite runner on his easy days. He ran his hard workouts really hard, and he ran really slow on his easy days. Because 6.30 a mile for a guy who was a 27, you know, 45 guy in, in college is slow. Mm. Yep. All right. So they were getting after when they were supposed to and running slowly on their other days. Age groupers out there, repeat, repeat, repeat that last three minutes from the Tin Man. That's brilliant. And it is. It's it's. When you're in the routine, it becomes hard wide. It does to go easy. And look at Deke, like you mentioned Deke earlier, like you know, out at Fernie Creek here in in the mountains of Victoria as well. Like yeah, nine nine ten minute start per mile starts, and then eased in a six thirty mile pace. And and that and that's um, an 80, 83 world champs winner, and and obviously a two hundred seven man. So and still our national record holder, coach. Um, really good. And I love that. I knew you'd take it there. So I appreciate that. You, you've mentioned lots of different coaches and uh, physiologists, Dr. Daniels, um, Joe Verhill, look, obviously Harry Wilson, who coached Steve Ovet, uh, Pat Clahessi, who coached Deke. You've mentioned Lydiard. Um, is there any other influences we've missed that's uh, kind of, I know you're very much a, um, you're a studious and you, you research everything, but is there any other coaches that we've missed? Like, is there anyone else like a Bauman or anyone else that you look to for, for things? I know you take a bit from everyone that's uh, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, of course. So mention any other yeah. coaches before we get into some other more lighter, quick fire things. Certainly Bill Bowerman was uh, one that I, I uh, admired. I admired his work. I read his book that he wrote a track and field book, a comprehensive track and field book that was published in the sixties. He actually wrote a book called Jogging um, based on his uh, conversation and experience with Arthur Lydiard when he took his guys over there to, uh, to New Zealand. And he saw that all around Auckland, people were jogging, just doing lots and lots of distance running at comfortable paces for enjoyment and health. Then he came back to the United States and he wrote uh, a book, Bill did. And then he ended up writing a track and field book. Um, so some of the key principles of Bill Bowerman were ones that I quickly adopted. Moderation, consistency, um, callousing, you know. Callousing is one where you prepare the athlete for the specific needs of the event that they're going to do. If they're going to run on hilly in a hilly course, they need to be pressed on hills. They're going to have surges in the race, they need to practice surges. If they're going to be running in hot weather, well, guess what? Running in cool weather is not a great idea. 
so Bill Bowerman was definitely one of them. And of course, his, uh, you know, his, his, uh, the other coach that was one of his athletes that became coach, Bill Dellinger. Um, Harry Groves from Penn State, another one. Um, McClemon from University of Wisconsin, uh, Madison. Uh, McClemon. Um, uh, my coach, Phil Eston. Al Carius from North Central College. Those are all American coaches. Um, and then, uh, you know, Harry Wilson and, and Dennis Watts over there um, in England, for sure. I've read Percy Cerruti's stuff, but I never really didn't, you know, absorb much of what he had. <laughs> it's a bit different, than, that stuff. Uh, other than the mental component of the Stoic, you know, the Stoic philosophy of being mentally tough and, and being somewhat organic in your approach. Um, He's a polarizing figure, old purse, I tell you. He, um, look, obviously, yeah, yeah the, the mental approach is, is admirable and definitely is, you can take a lot out of that. But um, I no. think, yeah, a lot of a lot of coaches and athletes in Australia would uh, would probably, pot, and even Landy, uh, I think, did steer away, <laughs> did steer away yeah. if, if they could. And that's, that's no disrespect, just the way it was. Yeah. I can think of a few others. Uh, certainly Gusta Homer from Sweden. Beautiful. Um, he wrote, he, you know, he, he developed a system of training in Sweden that was pretty extraordinary. And, and people don't realize that he didn't just describe fartlek training. Fartlek is a Swedish word meaning speed play. And, they, you know, the, the original design that he created was he set up a, a loop that was a cross-country ski loop, actually, through the forest and he would have, for example, uh, Anders Gerderud and, and I mean, um, I can't think of their names. So I don't know why I'm losing them, losing. I should know this. Um, but anyway, he coached two guys that ran about 401 in a mile prior to World War II. They were best in the world and they also ran world records at longer distances. But long story short is he'd set up like a thousand meter loop in uh, a thousand meter loop in the forest and they might sprint 50 meters, walk 50 meters, run a hundred meter hill really hard, walk or jog until the next section, run 400 meters uh, at 5K effort and so on. So they'd run a circuit. So the paces varied considerably and the challenges varied considerably in this thousand meter circuit or a 2000 meter circuit. But most people don't know this. Gosta Homer re assigned repeat thousands at 10K pace. Okay, I didn't even know this honestly until about ten years ago. No, we got, we know Goster is the godfather of fartlek and and those stuff of those early thirties and and yeah, but I, yeah. I I didn't know about the the repeats at at CV type intensities. Yeah, yeah, ten k. You just assign them at ten k intensity. Wow. So that's interesting. And then all of Lydiard's tables were based on Gosta Homer's. Mm. Gosta Homer's the one that came up with one quarter, one half, three quarters, and seven eighths effort tables. They were basically seven eighths is two and a half percent slower than all out. Three quarters is five percent. Half is seven and a half percent, and one quarter is ten percent slower than than all out for that distance. So that's what the original table. So if you look at Arthur Lydia's book, Run to the Top, which was his first book, I have it in my files. Those right were all borrowed from Gosta Homer. Okay, in fact, Lydia borrowed a lot, nearly all of Lydiard's stuff was borrowed from somebody else. Now, how he put it together eventually was his own crafting. But he borrowed long distance running from South Africa from a guy who was an ultra marathon, Arthur Newton. He developed, he developed um, a more ideas about endurance training from a guy from England from the early 1900s named Webb. He was a coach at a club, an athletics club. I can't remember, it was Oxford or something like that. He developed, um, Quite a few different ideas borrowed, Gusta Homer and so on and so forth. How he put it together and his own experimentation, that was his cool craft. But um, I do the same thing, except I put a science twist to it. You know, there's some things that I invented myself, but for the most part, I have looked at some of the best out there, refined what they did, put a science twist on it, said, when should it be used? How do we quantify it uniquely for each individual? What's the best sequence and pattern? How can I develop through your economy and their threshold? I understand how can I develop all those components? 
I have more or less like a Bowerman. I'm more or less like a, a scientific Bowerman. I'm, he, you know, he always said he was an eclectic coach. He borrowed from Franz Stampel, who coached Bannister and so on. He borrowed from Lydiard. He borrowed from Gusta Homer, right? He borrowed from others. And then he created his own system. I am in the same kind of model, except I like to use science to understand why we want to do certain things, certain activities. Brilliantly put. I love that. And we've, we've, I guess that's why you've been so um, popular over the last three decades, coach, is that you, you do put that scientific um, background into it. So for people like me that are intensely curious and are always wanting to read and learn uh, that kind of stuff, and it does, it marries in well. And then we, we know the whys. We, athletes out there, we always want to know the why. Um, behind what we're doing and and why we're doing it. So that's brilliantly put. A scientific bowman, that's a brilliant uh, brilliant description, I reckon, uh, Tommy. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me about this. We'll get into some quick fires after this, but uh, we have got a lot of marathoners on um, on this program from all over the joint. And they, I guess very quickly, mate, you don't have to go too in-depth. You've given us so much of your time and energy. But um, uh, Brogan Austin or, or, or one, a marathoner like that under your care, g- give us an average week in a specific phase for like a Brogan Austin. Well, I don't do phases like in the traditional sense at all. Oh, but so, Everything so, mate, like is five weeks out, like five, six weeks out. Well, what I believe in is tailoring to the dis- duration of the event and the needs of the individual athlete over the last six to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. So farther away from six to eight weeks from a marathon, right? In Brogan's case, eight weeks. Prior to that, he's doing more or less 10K type training. Okay. So he's doing lots of CB. He might do some tempo runs and he's doing some 5K work. He's doing a blend of everything. Why? Because the um, aerobic component can be built to a very high level when you're focused on 10K type training for him as a marathoner. And the economy will be improved dramatically over time. He becomes so skilled and so powerful that when he transitions to marathon training, right, running at a slower pace but for longer, right, he's so skilled and so powerful and so got so much machinery in place that it doesn't take much at all to become marathon fit. I borrow this concept from Frank Shorter, to be frank. And that's kind of funny because his first name is Frank. But anyway, you know, Frank Shorter said to be in 10, you know, be in six mile or 10K shape, you know, and then it's not too hard to transition into marathon fitness. Because he always said, put it another way, in the way he said it is, the best marathoners are 10K runners that just moved up. That was originally what he said. And I just interpreted it to say, train mostly for the 10K, Brilliant. then be specific for the marathon over the last couple months. Increase that cruising speed, increase that stamina. Cruising speed. And yeah, that's that's a term, by the way, I borrowed from Harry Wilson, Harry Wilson, right? should- cruising speed. And it makes so much sense, doesn't it, listeners? Like you, you got coach here telling you about this, and you, you're thinking, well, you, you're not in your head in the car if you're driving along. But um, it's brilliant. But you got to have the discipline to stick to this kind of methodology, and, and it does work. Just be patient; it does work. That's that's brilliantly put. Tell me about you, you. You would write some amazing books if you. I know you've got the brilliant book, Build Your Running Body, which um, I've had. I think I got. Um, back in 08 or something. Now um, it's a great book of Pete McGill and. Um, I'm missing someone. I'm on those three of you that wrote Melissa Breyer. Yeah, she wrote the diet. So there's three of you that put that together. Any plans for anything else? Because you would you would have it'd be I reckon about five. You could write five amazing books, I reckon. I might I might do that. Uh we'll see. I gotta finish up my dissertation first. Dissertation's a very, very arduous project. It's a very long research article, essentially. And uh I'm fried most of the time trying to just do that. You know, oh, just the first three chapters out of five are 158 pages. <laughs> yeah, okay. and, and it's and we're not talking about free flow writing. We're talking about everything has to be cited and everything has to meld together and, and refer to standardization and format processes. 
So, I mean, that to me is like we're writing at least three times as many pages. It is. It's monotonous. And next time we chat, Coach, you'll be Dr. Swartz. Yeah, finally. <laughs> you finally, mate. You've done so well. Tell me about have you got a favorite runner of all time? Doesn't matter. It could be it could be anyone. It doesn't have to be uh any of your guys or whoever. Favorite no. runner of all time from the Tin Man. Oh, from the Tin Man. Well, I don't I can't say anything. No, sorry, no, 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 sorry, mate. No, not from your crew. Gonna do that. No, no, not not from your crew. Your favorite runner as a spectator. Sorry. Oh. Okay. I would say Bill Rogers. Yep. Beautiful. Yeah, I saw him in person run and masterfully bust open the field like you wouldn't believe. I actually saw him win a 10K road race. Um, the field was loaded. It was in Rockford, Illinois. It was um, the gold medal run. I believe it was 1982. And in fact, I had a conversation with Bill about it about seven years ago, roughly, when we were in Kansas City at the Expo, Marathon Expo. And he recalled it and I said, you remember that he, he never forgets any race, the hundreds of races. He remembers every single race who was there, time, the date of it is unbelievable. It's extraordinary. I said, well, I was, you know, a high school kid and I, I watched you. My dad and I parked out there at about maybe a mile and a half or two miles. I'm not really sure. And it was an out and back course. He goes, yeah, we went out, we ran up this hill, blah, blah, blah. He knew it all. And, I said, well, when you went by, there was a pack of about 10, maybe 12 guys. And I said, in that field were some pretty impressive dudes. For example, uh, Steve Lacey was in there. He was a 350 miler. Okay. Um, he had made our Olympic team and all that. There were guys in there that were 2750, 2740, 10K runners. Um, there were a couple guys in there who had run like 21030 in the marathon, too. And uh, really packed field. And when he came back from the out and back, he had about a probably 150 yard, 150 meter lead. I couldn't believe it. I mean, this is a packed field. And by the way, the very following week, he flew to Melbourne and won in the marathon. I wonder what he was using. 82 ish, yeah. do you reckon? I think so, 82. That sounds right. Yeah. So, anyway, I asked him about that race. And, and what was really fascinating to me is his understanding of how race tactics really matter, not just being fit. He said, I, I threw in some surges the way I learned from the Kenyans. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, he goes, I threw in a surge at two miles, but I let him catch me. And then I threw in another surge and I let him gradually catch me again. And by the third time when I surged, they thought for sure they were coming back. And guess what? I didn't, I, I was relentless. I didn't let up this time. And I broke them. He goes, racing is up here. Training, that's in the body. Racing is up here. He goes, you got you to gotta know tactics. You got to know that you got to play mind games with others. And I just, I just thought it was really cool. You know, it just uh, makes me think that it's not just about how fit you are. It's about how you do, you know, how you execute a race strategy or how you respond to other people's race strategies. When, you, when you're winning as much as Bill, there's the whole holistic nature of the, the competitor, the athlete, the intelligent tactician. Um, and then obviously yeah, you need to be fit and in, and in rock hard shape as well. But often as well. Like you said, if you're racing as often as Bill Rogers, some over 30 times, sometimes in a year, um, there's a lot that goes into it. So yeah, that's a brilliant story. I appreciate you sharing. This is a bit off tack when all you're done, mate, you've been so generous in such a busy weekend of your time. Um, what about the Tin Man yourself? Of course, I'm speaking about you in the third person, three things you might take on a desert Island. Of course, your family is a given. What was three things that you'd need just to get by? And if you're trapped on a desert Island coach, with the team or no, no, just, just you. No, sorry, I just keep calling you the team. Man. Sorry, mate. No, no, oh. just just you. The family is a given. You'll take the family. What would Coach Swartz take? Three things on a desert island to get him through. Aside from that, which would keep me alive, my my family and I alive. You know, like food and water and yeah, fire. they're, they're okay. boring answers. 
Okay. Yeah. Give us give us a couple of things you might. I'd probably take uh, a books like Once a Runner or Again to Carthage. Great books. Um, by John L. Parker Jr. Mm-hmm. Those are. Um, he has a newer one, um, Running in the Rain or something like that. That I got an audio book. I can look it up. That John L. Parker Jr. The ability to write the running experience in a unique way that resonates with a person who is a, who's been a runner. Um, I think there's no better writer in my view for that genre. So that, that's something I would do because I could read that book over and over, like once a runner or against Agree. Carthage, I can read those. Agree. You know, Agree. six Agree. times in a year. I, mean, <laughs> I love it that much. Um, what else? Gosh, I don't know. You, you'd need, think, you'd music, need a laptop. Cause I like music. Yeah. Um, something where if I could have a radio or something like that or make sure I had a station I could get. But What's top of your playlist at the moment, Coach? Wow, gosh. Um, your fa- what about a couple of your favourite running songs or driving songs? Well, you know, songs like from the Eagles, you know, it's a little yeah. old school. I don't know. We love the Eagles, Danny. Yeah, the long run and stuff like that. And Beautiful. Desperado and songs like that. I kind of yeah. like, I like Journey. Oh, that's a little old school. I like Journey a lot. Um, I like songs that were kind of somewhere between the Beatles and, and uh, you know, Pearl Jam. Somewhere in the middle of those. <laughs> that's a bit. Look, I like talk- Kansas. I like, you know, some people, a group that maybe a lot of people nowadays don't know, Rush. I like Rush. You know, that was one of mine. Fantastic. Foreigner. Foreigner. For, I love Foreigner. Yeah, a lot of their music. Some good know, jo- uh, some good genres there, Coach. Hero, man. I just love that song, Jukebox Hero. It's <laughs> about a guy, you know. You, if you don't know that song, man, that's, that's sort of like what every runner is. You know, it's the same thing, you know. He hears this song being played, and he's like, man, I want to be like that musician. I want to be able to do what that guy does. It's sort of like a runner. You know, you'll see somebody in the Olympic Games. Like, I want to be like that guy. You know, I want to do what he or she is doing. That's what that jukebox hero is up. So he goes and buys him. He goes to a secondhand store and buys, you know, a guitar. It starts practicing so he can be like that guy. You know, it's the, it's, it's the inspiration that really makes the human experience amazing. We need people that inspire us. And we need to be inspired and we need to inspire others. If we do that, we keep the energy, the vitality of life, you know, overflowing. It gets rid of despair. It gets rid of all that negative stuff. If you can focus on something that inspires others and inspires yourself, you got yourself covered. What a brilliant way to finish. Well, I was I was gonna go for a nice light finish, but I love the way you finish there, Coach. Um, I really appreciate that. that. That'll be another soundbite, I'd imagine, with the producer Tommy Senior. You use that one over and over. Um, just quickly, what's the future hold for you, buddy? I know we're we've got the doctorate, and obviously very very busy with the elite crew and the age groupers that you coach all over the world. Um, what's the future hold for Tom Swartz? Well. Um, this weekend's kind of a big deal. We'll be going out to California for a track meet. So it'll be a, an opportunity for some of my guys to race and a, a lot of other league guys to race. So that's pretty exciting. Um, we don't really know what the race schedule is coming up. We know that a couple major indoor meets might occur, such as at Boston University or the Milrose Games, but probably no spectators, I'm guessing, which is kind of a bummer because, you know, if you're an athlete, uh, that uh, the cheering from the crowd gets you jazzed up. It gets you excited. I feel bad for a lot of these athletes who are competing with nobody in the audience. Um, and then, uh, of course, you know, what we got next spring is possibly some opportunities to, to get ready for the Olympic trials, whether it's to qualify for the trials for those who have not or for some of my foreign athletes. I mean, I coach two foreign athletes, you know, Jordan Guzman and Cameron Griffith, both Aussies. Um, you know, we see, you know, actually Cameron is the only Aussie technically yeah, now Jordy. because Jordan is with Malta. <laughs> I'd love him. Um, I'd love him to be an Aussie though. He's, he's a gun, isn't he? Yeah. He's yeah. Good. And then I got, you know, Sam Parson, who's a, who's a, who grew up in the United States, but he's got German citizenship. He, he won their German indoor nationals 
uh, 3,000 and got second in their 5,000. Probably would have won their 5,000 in my view had he not waited just a hair too long to get start his kick to his sprint on the last lap. But so, but like the year before last, I had four national champions in a short period of time within like, I don't know, eight weeks or something. The Brogan Austin won the national marathon championships in the United States. Drew Hunter won the um, two mile indoor championships. Sam Parsons won the indoor 3000 meters in Germany national championships. And, and then Jordan Guzman, uh, he ran the 5000 meters. He won the uh, 5000 meters in Australia and their, their national championships there. So we're hoping for some, you know, repeat. We're hoping for some outstanding performances this coming year. We're hoping the Olympics actually take place. <laughs> um, we think it'll happen. We, we, every word, every indication is that will take place, but there'll be lots of restrictions. Um, I don't think there'll be many people in stands. I think coaches will have extremely limited access, um, which is kind of, kind of frustrating, I think, for the athletes who need their coaches, who need somebody to keep them calm. You know, say, hey, you know, a sense of normality is really a big deal for an athlete who's under a lot of pressure. Especially you know? the Olympic Village is the last thing from normal. So to have that that voice and that your mentor in your corner is, is quite important. Yeah. You know, it's why a lot of the great athletes, through the one, the great track and field athletes in the past who have not, um, who have performed beautifully. Um, have not stayed in the Olympic Village. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I guarantee that nearly every single Nike athlete will not be in the, the uh, Olympic Village. They'll be in some nice, comfortable bread and breakfast or whatever you want to call it, Airbnb type, somewhere um, away from the hubbub and that, the distractions, being able to just stay as comfortable and normal as possible. This is um, a little bit off tangent, but the, the there's always one, like I know Bauman was the coach of the American team in 72 and um, something like that. If that, if that came up, would you, you'd be, would you jump at that or you just haven't got the time? I would do it as long as it didn't affect my ability to help my own athletes. Yeah, Cause you would be brilliant. I would look at it as a, I would certainly think of it as an honor. Mm. There's no doubt that it is, but I know that it has a huge amount of responsibility that goes with it. I talked to Joe Vigil a couple because he was on coach. And I said, you know, is there a lot? He goes, yeah, there's a lot involved. And some of it's, some of it is logistics. Some of it is going to lots of meetings um, that has nothing to do with your athletes. Mm. So yeah, I would do something like that. If I felt that I could help the Olympic squad, if my contribution could help the squad, the betterment of the whole, then I would do it. I think, but um, if it was just superficial, um, it would be cool to have the honor to say I was an Olympic coach. But if it if it didn't help people, I wouldn't do it. I think you'd help many people, but yeah, I don't, maybe not twenty twenty one with everything else you've got going on. But if it comes up, I think you'd be a great man for the job. And I don't think anyone could argue. There's not many more qualified, applied, or from a science perspective. So, coach, have you got any last words for the runners out there worldwide? Um, make sure you enjoy your sport. I mean, we, we tend to get into the, uh, how fast you run in workouts or how fast you run races as the only measure of, you know, of, of the worth of the sport, but the, this, the joy of running the movement, feeling healthy and vibrant to me, that has got to be an essential part. Put away your watch or turn your watch upside down on your wrist Go out there and run on the forest trails or with some friends. Enjoy the sport. Enjoy running. If you do that, chances are you're going to not regret it. You're going to actually have some great experiences. And you're going to have some personal bests. And you're going to stay in the sport longer. And you're going to go to new locations and meet new people that you never would have otherwise if you had quit because you were fried, because you didn't enjoy it. And don't get caught up in the, well, I'm not improving anymore, so there's no sense of doing it. Brilliant. I'm that sorry. Is- talk, to any, talk to any master's runner who no longer has their ability to run fast like they did when they were young. 
and you will learn a lot about what really matters. It's sort of like family. What, what really matters? Your family matters. That is a brilliant way to finish, Coach. And I really do thank you. The listeners, you, this will be one of those, we, we'll make it a double episode, of part one, part two, that you just listen and listen and listen again because um, every time you listen to Coach Swartz, you'll pick up something new, uh, whether it's from a physiological, methodological, but, of course, just then that a beautiful take on, on life and running in general. There is no need to make it harder than it should be. We need to enjoy. We're lucky. It's a privilege to move, and we need to be out there enjoying every step. Um Coach, I thank you so, so much for the last couple of hours. I know you're in the middle of a real busy, busy time. Um, so I thank you for getting on online over in Colorado there, mate. So thank you so much. It's been an honor, and I really appreciate uh, you doing what you're doing for the sport. You know, you're trying to help people out and keep the sport vibrant and alive. Keep it going. Thanks, Coach. Runners, this has been Runners Radio. Please do something today. It's going to make you better tomorrow. And you can start by listening to this episode with Tom the Tin Man Swartz over and over again. Thank you. <laughs>